0: Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, this, the uh, just recently, um, Ella, my oldest, um, my daughter. We were on a walk and we were talking, and she was kind of giving me the download of the day, and um, she was kind of telling me about something that was going on. She was like, there's a backstory, but we don't have time for it. And then she kind of continued into her conversation. And I was just sitting there kind of laughing because she's so much like me. I, I love a good backstory. Uh, I'm, right now I'm reading the book Blind Side. And the thing I'm enjoying about it is Michael Lewis's ability to really paint the picture for why um, the, the, the left tackle became such an essential part of uh, NFL football. And I'm not even like a huge sports like fanatic, and it's amazing to me the backstory and all the way back into the 70s and 80s and 90s around Joe Montana, and just I'm like, my mind is blown. So maybe she gets the backstory thing for me, which shouldn't have been surprising when um, later on that same day, I, um, I said, hey, Ella, um, I'm kind of creating this series um, called The Bible for Grownups around this idea of like, Uh, future questions that you would have as you got older about the Bible. like That's been one of the things that's kind of helped frame in my head, in some ways, trying to record these videos uh, for my future kids, because this is about the Bible for grown-ups, that we do a great job in our family ministry of giving uh, the Bible to the kids in a way that's engaging, in a way that um, helps them to thrive in their faith, but this is a series that's really meant to kind of pass the ball in a sorts to help the Bible become a part of our grown-up life, not just our childhood, that we want people to be able to grow up in their faith, not out of their faith. And so I asked her, hey, what, what kind of questions do you think you would have about the Bible as you get older? And she was like, hmm, she thought about it. And then she said, oh, I'd like to know, where did the Bible come from? Like, how did we get the Bible? Like, she recognizes that she's gotten the Bible from, like, her mom and me, that we've given her the Bible. But in her mind, she's like, Look, you know, was Jesus born in a manger with a, a study Bible, a big old family Bible kind of tucked in beside? Was it a gift from the wise men? Did it come down from the clouds, like, ha, ah! the Bible? I and mean, she's like, Where did the Bible come from? And, like, when the Bible came, did the people writing the Bible know they were writing the Bible? And I was like, dang, girl, I was expecting, like, did Adam have a belly button? But okay, like, man, that's that's strong. I'm like, I'm going to have to answer that question now. So thank you, Alikazi, because you gave me the idea for where to start this week, because this is a question that I think not only she has, but um, many of us would be afraid of that question. Like, let me throw it back to you. What if your, your cousin, your nephew, your kids, or your spouse looked at you and asked the question, maybe your co worker, say, so How'd you get the Bible? Where did it come from? Because what they're really asking when they say that, what they're really wanting to know is, Can we trust the Bible? That's the question underneath the question about where did the Bible come from, is can we trust it? And the reason this matters. And the reason this is so important is not just so that in the moment we have an answer to that question, whether you struggle with that question now or you may be the person to help answer that question later. The reason this is so essential is because if we're going to grow in the conviction of our faith, we also have to simultaneously grow in the confidence that we have in the Bible. That's what it looks like for us to be people to engage with the Bible for grown-ups. Now, fortunately for us, the tension of trust that gets unsurfaced with that question is not something that's new to us in the modern age. In fact, in the early church, as they began to kind of mobilize and become this growing movement of people born out of a resurrected rabbi, one of the things that became increasingly um, kind of present in their life was persecution and pushdown and oppression. That if you were a Christian, that meant that not only were you an outlaw, not only were you practicing an illegal faith during certain periods of the Roman um, Empire, but it also meant that you could lose your life, that you could lose your job, your livelihood, or your family. And that as the early church began to spread, some of the apostles um, found themselves in positions trying to speak to people's struggle. One of them was Peter, perhaps one of Jesus' most famous. Followers. And that Peter writes two different letters and inspires a third in the New Testament. Um, Peter writes 1st and 2 Peter, and in both of them are written to a group of people who are struggling with the same thing. They're struggling with pressure, both external pressure of persecution and oppression, and the internal pressure of people's confusion and people's um, lies and um, bad doctrine and beliefs that were starting to spread in-house. And so Peter writes this letter, 2 Peter chapter 3. um, It's in the Encounter Church app already loaded there for you. um, He says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them. Why? As reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Now, this wholesome thinking is, is, is like, this is my desire. This is my purpose. This is my intent. And wholesome means sincere. It, it means um, pure. It means that it hasn't been mixed with distortions. It hasn't been tainted. And that's speaking to the internal pressures that they were dealing with. And the reason this was so critical was because what they were dealing with on the outside of persecution would cause them to crumble. And to, to kind of walk away from their faith if what on the inside was not sincere, was not untainted. Um, it's, it's one of those critical kind of building compounds that you mix the wrong things together in the wrong way. And what can end up happening is that a building collapses because of it. That the the composition of the concrete matters. And so this is what Peter's trying to point to. In fact, he says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past. So here's how we do this wholesome thinking. Here's what's going to form and fuse and empower our wholesome thinking. It's going to be the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And so what he's doing in here is he's outlining for them the words to different groups. This is one of the earliest moments where we see both Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures and the New Testament letters referenced one of the first times in the Bible that we see that. And the first part, he says, is in the past by the holy prophets. And what he's referring to is um, the Old Testament words that were so central to the Jewish faith, because Christianity um, was an offshoot of Judaism. And so it was born out of the Jewish movement. And so he's pointing them to the Jewish scriptures. And he says, I want you to recall those Jewish scriptures in the past that were written by those holy prophets. And So here we are, 2,000 years ago, when Peter writes this, and Peter is calling them to think wholesomely, um, completely, fully, untainted, um, and he's pointing them back to the Jewish Scriptures. Now, here's an assumption I'm going to make this morning, that Peter, 2,000 years before this moment, could refer to letters, could refer to documents that both he and Jesus and Paul all reference with authority, that we can... Um, for the assumption underneath this morning is that we're going to trust that the words that they had were the words that were good, that the words that were pure were the words that hadn't changed. But that was 2,000 years ago. And the question I think that bubbles up is, can can we, if we're going to ask the question, can we trust the Bible, how do we know that those words that he's referencing, these words in the past written by holy prophets, haven't changed? because these words in the Jewish scriptures are really, really, really old. And now we're 2,000 years removed from Peter telling people to recall those words specifically. And so to answer that question, I want to take you on a trip, not one that requires you to go anywhere, but a virtual one. Okay. This is called the shrine of the book. It's a very odd looking um, structure. I get it. Um, It's Found in the Jerusalem Museum in Israel, inside of this strange structure, is one of the kind of critical, most important, um, and really awe-inspiring exhibits that they have. Uh, there's, in, in fact, there's two things inside of this room that I want to highlight to answer that question around trusting the Jewish scriptures. Um, the first is a book that you've never read, that you've never interacted with, that you didn't even know it existed, but you've, if you've ever held a Bible, you've held it. And it's called the Aleppo Codex. All right, so I'm, I've just given you a potential $2,000 Jeopardy answer right here, okay? What is the oldest copy that we have of the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament, bing, bing, the Aleppo Codex. Thank you, Encounter Church. Right? Like, you are welcome. Okay? And so the Aleppo Codex was written around 1000 AD. It's the oldest, mostly complete Old Testament copy that we have. It was called the Aleppo Codex because of where it was located in Syria. Um, but the Aleppo Codex is the primary driver for what you find in your Old Testament when you hold a Bible or when you read it on an app. Now, what's fascinating is that the people who wrote the Aleppo Codex, okay, the people who wrote the Aleppo Codex were a group of people called the Mazarites. Now, they're not a group of people that you've probably spent a lot of time with, but this is their, their handiwork. Now, the Aleppo Codex, what was fascinating about it is that um, the the word for scribe in the Hebrew is the word for counter, like one, two, three, like, you know, for those Sesame Street kind of people count, right? The count, ha ha ha, one, ha ha ha, two, ha 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 ha, three, ha ha, right? Like that was the word for scribe in the Hebrew. And the reason they were called scribes counters is because they were amazing at meticulous details. In fact, the scribes knew that the first five books of the Old Testament had 400,945 letters. They knew exactly the number of letters. They also knew what the middle word for those first five books were, and it was the word translated searched in Leviticus 10.16. They knew that was the middle word. So when they were evaluating the scroll, the codex, and kind of checking it and making sure it was all correct, they could use even the numbers counting to verify where the words were. They even knew what the middle letter in the entire Hebrew kind of first five books were called, and it was the like the middle letter was found in the word for belly in Leviticus 11.42. So, I mean, it was amazing, both at the word level and the letter level, how they understood and how they counted. They approached it with a level of professionalism that's really inspirational for us today in this um, kind of online meeting world. Every day a scribe got up, and even though a scribe um, was working at the same place, they were essentially working from home, uh, the scribe, when they were going to be transcribing uh, copies from manuscripts and transcripts, they would get up, they would bathe, they would get dressed, and they would come in completely kind of cleansed and ready to write with a fresh body and a fresh mind. I mean, none of this roll out of bed, put on the sports coat, but still wear the shorts like for the Zoom meeting. These people showed up at their Zoom meeting with their shoes tied and their pants pressed. OK, they were in it. And every time they got to the name God in the text, they would actually go and get a new pen with new ink to write it down too. That's how meticulous and detailed they were. But it's still just a thousand years ago. It's not 2000 years ago. And then one day in the Dead Sea area, there's a ton of caves. A, a Bedouin boy who's overseeing a group of goats, loses some goats, and he's trying to find them. And He picks up a rock and he throws the rock into a cave and he hears Krash! Now, I, I have to confess, as a young boy, I have had that moment of taking something, throwing it, and hearing crashing. Now, it was a surprise for me, but I knew there was glass nearby. This boy is in the middle of the desert and he threw a rock into a cave trying to flesh out the goats that he thought maybe were up there and he hears a crash. That's not a normal noise to hear in the desert. And so when he goes up there he finds one of the most significant archaeological finds in the last 100 years. He finds the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written by a group of people called the Essenes. They, um, In the Dead Sea Scrolls this amazingly vast large repository of literature, Um, the Essenes, with the same level of meticulous that we see with the Masorites, had copies and text from every single Jewish scripture in the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. The Dead Sea Scrolls, when they were able to put the Dead Sea Scroll up against the Aleppo Codex, what they found was that this text was the same text as the other. They had virtually not changed in one thousand years because the Essenes wrote this 200 years before Jesus was born. And so when Peter is referencing words written in the past by the holy prophets, you and I today can know this, that the words that Peter and Jesus reference are the same words that you and I can reference today in our Jewish scriptures or Old Testament. It's amazing. Now, you may not believe those words are true, but here's what you can trust. You can trust they're the same words. And if Peter could call those people to draw wisdom and strength from those words, what's amazing is those exact same words, the exact same words, can be drawn and found strength in today, too, by you and me. It's amazing to think words written that long ago have been preserved. But Peter doesn't stop. Peter goes on, he says, not just the past words spoken by the holy prophets, but the ones from the command given by our Lord and Savior through you, through your apostles. He's referring to himself. Peter is an apostle. Uh, Matthew is an apostle. These are people who were recognized in the early church because they had followed Jesus. Um, They had spent time with him and they were the leaders of the early church. John is another one. And a lot of them collectively wrote and inspired the books that we have Um, kind of bound in the New Testament. But later in that same letter, Peter goes to verse 15 and 16. He says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with wisdom that God gave him. So now he's further on in the letter. He's still trying to inspire them to persevere. And he moves to the fact that Paul is also considered one of those apostles. In fact, he even says that Paul writes with wisdom that God gave him. That these are words, not just Paul's special insight. It's not just Paul's TED Talks or Paul's kind of stream of consciousness that he's saying, no, this wisdom he has comes from God. It's unique. In fact, he goes on in the next verse and says, his letters, so Paul is the um, most prolific writer in the New Testament. So Peter's referencing multiple letters he wrote contain some things that are hard to understand. First of all, If you have ever read the Bible and you have found it hard to understand, you are in good company. Here's Peter who has spent time with Jesus referencing Paul's letters and he's acknowledging to the people who would have listened to them and read them that they're hard to understand, that they're challenging. And that the difficulty and the depth that they have are the reason that ignorant and unstable people have distorted them. Remember the call to wholesome thinking? It's not just the pressure outside, but it's the pressure within, within where people have distorted people who don't know. Have you, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the people with the least amount of information are usually the ones with the strongest opinions. Now you may need to write that down because that's that's good. The people with the least amount of information are oftentimes the ones with the strongest opinions. And Peter's saying that, look, there's a lot of ignorant people who do not know Jesus, who do not know what Jesus is about or what he was like, who don't have a problem lifting something out of context and distorting its message. And he's like, you need to be careful with those people because they will distort. Those people will distort messaging. They will end up buying private jets. They will have large homes and they will tell you to send them their money. And he's like, but do not allow their distortion of the truth to rob you of the trust that you have in the truth. He says, look, they're distorting to their own destruction. But notice the phrase inside of that. As they do the other scriptures. Peter is saying that Paul's letters and the letter that he's writing are actual scriptures. This is the first time that we see in the New Testament where the New Testament self-affirms. This is the first time that we see the New Testament saying, hey, these words, they're trustworthy and they're true. And I've written them to you. Now, One of the kind of internal tests, and you can actually see some of the internal tests here. One of the internal tests for the early church around whether or not a letter was a scripture or not typically involved three different things. One, they involved, like we saw Paul in this previous passage, um, it looked at who wrote it. Were they seen as people who had a unique position, a unique authority, unique insight from God? And both Peter, the apostles, and Paul were one of those people. And so first box was checked, okay, Peter, Paul. Second box was, um, does this message pertain to a larger audience than just the audience it's written to? Does it have wisdom and truth for for like a global audience? And there are letters that we know Paul wrote, because Paul references them, that we don't have in our New Testament letters. And the reason we don't have them in our New Testament letters is because the audience that they were written to, the content in which they kind of focused on, were so narrow that it was not for the global church throughout human history. It was really for those people in that moment, right? So the uh, a call to you know take care of this person, feed them, like some of the logistics of some of those things. Those letters never made it because the audience was too narrow. And then the third piece, which is a little overwhelming, and I'm not even sure if this computer is going to be able to handle this picture. Um, So this is a data analysis that was done on um, internal cross-referencing within the Bible. Because this was the third test. Does it strengthen the message of the Bible? Because if it doesn't, it's not part of the Bible. And so what this is, is this is a visual... um, Kind of a visual display of the data of cross referencing. Each one of these little white tick marks at the bottom is a chapter of the book of the Bible. So y- there's a lot of tick marks down here at the bottom. And each uh, blurry little line, probably to you um, and even to me, because I'd have to zoom in to this picture to see the crystal clear lines, each one of these lines bouncing around are cross references to other passages in other chapters. Some, like this, spreading the whole entirety of the the Bible. Hundreds of thousands of various cross-references contained within. This was one of the final checks for whether or not a letter was, in fact, Scripture. That this incredible... Cross-referencing and internal strengthening written by dozens of authors over thousands of years speaks to the integrity of the storyline of the scriptures. But I think a natural question that bubbles up for many of us, if if you ever watched The Da Vinci Code, this was kind of thrown at you, or if you've ever um, had a dialogue around someone who's read certain books, they'll ask you this question. So why doesn't the first New Testament appear until the fourth century? Right? And then you can kind of usually cue the music like, dun, dun, dun. Like, why don't we have a bound copy of the New Testament until the 4th century? Explain that. Yeah, conspiracy. Books were left out on purpose. This was all guided by the government and how they push things. In actuality, this answer is far simpler than any conspiracy theory needs to give reality is is that up until the fourth century, Christianity was outlawed in the Roman Empire. It's really hard to print and bound books in when your faith is outlawed, there's no publisher willing to bound and collect and publish those kind of books because it will get them killed. right? And so for those 300 years between Jesus' resurrection, and the Edict of Milan, which eventually legalizes Christianity, that during those 300-year span, those books were, were collected and they were protected. But they were never published for the world to see because even physically gathering together all the people who collected and protected those letters were a threat to the Christian faith. For 300 years, it was illegal That's why you do not see it. That's why, when Christianity with the Edict of Milan finally is unfolded and Christianity is legalized, and you have the Council of Hippo, the Council of Carthage, which I'm sure all of us are excited to read about, um, that have essentially come together and they're the first uh, church council that speaks to the New Testament letters. That's why by the time they get to those councils, there's not debate at the councils of what books should be in or out. That decision had already been made. You see, underneath oftentimes that question about when the New Testament was first bound is the assumption that the Bible created Christianity. And the Bible did not create Christianity. Remember at the beginning of this series, we, we looked at Jesus did not write the Bible. But he is the reason we have the Bible. That the reason that the Christian scriptures were collected and protected was because Christianity is the result of an event that created a movement that produced texts that were collected, protected, and bound into a book when it was finally legal to do so. And that this is a really important piece to understand because they believed that the rabbi crucified that Friday who was placed in the ground, came back from the dead. And in coming back from the dead in that resurrection power, that event sparked a movement that should have never been successful, that should have never grown. But they had a story worth telling, and it was a threat to their own life to tell it, but they recognized if the author of life who was able to defeat death did so, then even if I die, I'm still alive. That I'm going to tell his story. I'm going to share his story. I'm going to let people know of the life change that's happened to me. And they continued to do so over and over and over because it was a story worth telling and it was a story worth talking about. And so they did for 300 years at the risk of their life. And it, and it continued to spread because it was a story that had personal implications. It has a story that had a profound headline that rewrote even how we should see the Bible as grown-ups that the story of the bible reminds us that the most important question is not are you at peace with everything in the bible that oftentimes people's tension around trust isn't so much around the trust it's around the truth that it has and that for many of us that one of the reasons that we've never leaned into the christian faith is because of all the other stuff in the bible but the headline the storyline of the bible reminds us that the important question is not are you at peace with this portion of the Old Testament. The headline of the Scripture is that have we found peace with the God who so loved the world that He gave His Son for us? That that's the, the, the burning question that the story of the Bible poses for you and me. Because the trust question can be dealt with. And there are legitimate questions, but it can be dealt with. The harder question isn't to be bogged down in all these other truth claims in the Scriptures, although they're important. It's the the most important part, the story behind the story of the Bible, is that Jesus, who claimed to be God, who claimed to be the one who came to reconcile and to reconnect the spiritually disconnect between God and them, to be the bridge so that you and I could find peace Hope, joy, and reconciliation with the God who created us. A hope not just for this life, but a hope for the afterlife too. That that storyline is the one that Jesus birthed into existence the day he walked out of that tomb. And that the reason you and I can trust the Bible is not just that it it can hold up to textual analysis, that it can hold up to historical analysis, Um, inspection and um, can can hold up to even some some deeper interrogation it's that the central event of christianity says to you and i even today that you and i can be reconciled with god and that the the bigger headlines that fold out of that is that you and i can be transformed we can be made new in some ways, approaching the Bible and, and, and focusing on all the small details and all these different passages and saying, well, I can't take that step because of all these things, is sort of like looking at marriage and saying, well, I can't get married because, because I'd have to do someone else's um, laundry or I would have to like, file my taxes with them. And to and to starting to pull out all these little nuanced pieces that are after the fact, that are consequential of the choice, but are not the choice itself. The choice itself is do you believe that Jesus is in fact who He says He is? And do you believe that people around Him who have been eyewitnesses to His storyline unfolding, who collected and protected those stories and, and guarded them so that 300 years later they could be brought and bound together and proclaimed globally that He in fact was God come for you and me so that we could be with Him and be made new in Him. That means that the drug addictions, the alcohol addictions, the sexual addictions, those things that have changed you for so long no longer have to define you. It means that you can be set free and released from the things that have marked your life because He came for you and me to be made new. And that the things that would cause you to trip up in the Bible, that caused me to trip up in the Bible, are things I boldly embrace because I see them as pathways to freedom. Because I know personally what it's like to live with chains. I know personally what it's like to live enslaved and brought down and defined by all the regret and the guilt that's marked my life up until that moment I met Jesus. And that the freedom that He brought, that He's still bringing, is the central storyline of the story of the Bible. That no matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you're doing right now, that he's made a way for guilt and shame and regret to be released from your life and for a pathway of peace and joy and hope to be paved in front of you. That I can't begin to describe the difference Jesus makes in your life. That this summer will be 19 years I've been a Christian. And each year keeps getting better. doesn't always mean my life gets easier. But it means who I am on the inside is constantly being refined and transformed. And that throughout this entire season of COVID-19, I've been completely at peace with dying. I've been completely at peace with living. I've been at peace with our finances. I've been at peace with the, the social disconnect. Not because I'm a pastor but because I believe the person of Jesus makes an authoritative claim that's born out of a historical event. And that if he can defeat sin and death, if he can walk out of an empty tomb, then there's no grave that can hold me down. There's no chain that can hold me down. And that nothing else matters like Jesus.